You're listening to The Digital Factory, presented by Formlabs. I'm John Bruner. And I'm David Craner. In this series, we'll explore digital manufacturing in conversations with experts who are changing the way things are made and shaping the future of the factory floor. Our guest today is Spencer Wright. He's the head of product at N Topology, which is a startup in New York that does software to create lattices used in digital fabrication. He's also the author of The Prepared, which is an amazing newsletter that all of you should subscribe to. Spencer, great to have you on. Thanks, John. Thanks, David. That's The Prepared as in whom fate favors? Exactly, yeah, which uh, most people don't get. Um, But when I started it, it was kind of trying to prepare myself for changes in careers and projects and so on and so forth. And so, yeah, fortune favors the prepared, exactly. So what's what's kind of the, the overall theme in the prepared? I've been subscribing for a couple of years. It's a blend of like, you know, new developments in digital fabrication, as well as infrastructure appreciation and a handful of other things. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, the core principle is that it has to relate to you know, something that's, I, I try and focus on things that are kind of existentially significant, right? Mm-hmm. I don't cover, you know, product launches. I don't, I don't look too much at, you know, fitness tracking and that kind of thing. Um, but it is, you know, hardware product development from strategy through R&D and engineering and then manufacturing, supply chain management, and, uh, and then you know, yeah, that, that kind of stuff. It spans a lot of different things. I mean, I do love big infrastructure projects, but but mostly kind of manufacturing, engineering. But yeah, you know, uh, I, I love consumer tech, but also try and get a little bit of like aerospace stuff in there too. Yeah. Have you taken a ride on the Second Avenue subway yet? You know, I actually haven't. It opened right before my daughter was born. And so it's, and it's just not in my normal kind of area. You mean you're, you're not always going to the uh, Far East side? <laughs> no, I'm not. Yeah. Uh, I love it. You know, I hope that we get more kind of similar infrastructure projects like that in New York soon. I'm worried about the whole de Blasio and Cuomo fight, um, but yeah, we'll see. Yeah, I really like the whole, uh, how it not only covers just the manufacturing angles, but also is really the best and most prescient and coolest supply chain and logistics nerdery publication that I've got access to. Because, you know, none, none of this stuff means anything unless you can unless you can get it somewhere. And there's some really interesting human and environmental elements that play into the logistics bit. Yeah, I try and stay up on logistics. You know, I don't have a career in supply chain management per se. But the amazing thing is, you know, I started this newsletter, yeah, there were a couple of months where I was sending it to literally nobody. You know, it was I was sending this email and only I actually knew about it. But these days I get a couple of emails per week at least from usually somebody who's actually in that field, you know, something that's interesting that they, they noticed. And so it's actually been a really great way for me to be educated because yeah, I'm not I'm not necessarily an expert in rail transit or something like that. So yeah, it's a cool introduction. And it's kind of like you're talking a lot to the crew at the border between professional, traditional manufacturing engineers and the kind of new model digital fabrication people who maybe like don't have a background with a with a degree in some kind of engineering or, you know, mechanical engineering, but who are finding it possible to do this stuff. Yeah. And, you know, I should note, you know, so I studied linguistics in college. I spent most of my college career thinking about the structure of English sentences of all things, which in its own way is actually, it's kind of reverse 
reverse engineering a system that you have all this data on what constitutes a good English sentence. And so our goal was just to reverse engineer and try to figure out what the rules were. But yeah, I mean, I came into manufacturing and engineering through a weird path. And so trying to highlight those things is something that, that means a lot to me. So let's let's talk about end topology. This is something that is a, a unique idea now that digital fabrication is within reach in manufacturing a lot of different things. You guys make software that designs specialized lattices. Explain. <laughs> yeah, so most people are aware of 3D printing in some context, right? And what I found through my own exploration with primarily metal 3D printing, um, this is a process, you know, the, the machines cost somewhere on the order of half a million to a million dollars. It's not just press go. What you find is that if you design a part that really comes from a machining background or a casting background and just try to put it in a printer and press go, you get really bad results on a couple of different metrics. You know, first of all, in a lot of cases, the part won't even print successfully. But then secondly, even if you are able to get it to print, it won't be cost effective or, uh, you know, it won't have the same performance characteristics. And so as I was kind of exploring my own research in metal added manufacturing, became more and more interested in new design techniques that are really specifically for industrial 3D printing. If you're a user of CAD tools, you'll realize that there are these general purpose CAD suites, you know, things like Inventor and SolidWorks and Fusion and even higher end packages like Siemens NX or PTC Creo. They're they're fantastic, but they're not particularly good at is really niche manufacturing processes that have specific design constraints. And so with metal 3D printing, there are all these different reasons why you would want to create these really complex lattice structures. And it's very difficult to do so in traditional CAD software. And so and topology, we make CAD software just for that design strategy. As far as I understand it, it's that what we know as a bike seat post, for example, you might say, is shaped in that way, you know, not necessarily, you know, it's over-designed for the forces that it has to transmit, right? Like, it's more of a product of traditional manufacturing processes, but with 3D printing and additive manufacturing technology, you can really only put metal and material in the place that it needs to be, and so you can save more material and also have a lighter thing and also have a more efficient build process, but it really changes the way you have to think about designing it. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, you are able to just put material in the areas that have high stress. But, I, you know, there, there are design limitations to additive manufacturing as well. And so, for instance, you know, most people who have used a form or even a MakerBot or something, you'll realize that you have support structures during the printing process, right? So wherever you have an overhang, you have to support that area. And in some cases, yeah, you will use sacrificial support structures where you're going to print a part and then you're going to throw away maybe half of it because that's just meant to support the part that you want to print. But if you use lattice structures, what we find is that oftentimes you can create a part that actually supports itself. And you might have a little bit more material than than you would want otherwise. But in some cases, you can use that to your advantage and create something that is really, really stiff in a particular area and doesn't require any support structures at all because a lattice structure itself is keeping itself up, essentially. So as a user of CAD software, I know how to do drawing and clicking and extruding and stuff and like do constructive solid geometry and, and stuff like that. But I don't even know how to begin designing something for a lattice structure. Like how do you even specify a part? How does the tool work to let you specify the part but then end up 
up with this beautiful organic looking lattice structure? So there are a couple different ways to do it. If you are used to traditional CAD software, you probably have a pattern feature. And so you can, in SOLIDWORKS, Inventor, whatever you use, you can create some geometry and then pattern it in 3D space. Typically, that can be very time consuming. It's also very difficult to introduce any variation to that. And so we have one method generating lattices, call them periodic lattices, where it's very similar to that, where you say, hey, I have some cell and it has this size and scale and it has beams in these orientations and I'm going to repeat it throughout 3D space along, it might just be X, Y, Z. You might instead start with a cell that is, you know, for instance, a hexagon, in which case you're going to pattern it differently, but you're going to have some primitive geometry that you're repeating throughout space. That's one method. However, there are other ways to do it, right? Periodic lattices are great. And in a, usually what we'll do is we'll, we'll allow for some variation. So we'll say, you know, we have this regular cell, but it can vary in its beam thickness or something like that. And then we can use some data set to control beam thickness in 3D space. However, we can also do other things. So for instance, we have stochastic lattices where you're generating pseudo-random, you know, random points in a 3D volume. And then you're actually growing lattice cells around those points. And then you can create beams in those cells, depending on a couple different characteristics. It's a very different process. Uh, we, we have a couple different methods, one of which we call them Voronoi cells, which is a type of geometry invented by a guy named Voronoi, I think. It's the one where all the cells are randomly perimeter shaped, doesn't matter, but all the center points of each cell are equidistant apart. Equidistant or, or close, exactly. Yeah. Wow. Is there like a paper published from Russia in like 1992 that's the relevant uh, reading? <laughs> Canonical. <Yeah. laughs> Something like that. Yeah. The, the cool thing about the Voronoi cells is that we can actually vary their density as well. And so you take some volume and you're creating these points randomly inside of it, but we can actually control the distribution. And so we can say in this area where I have particularly high stress, or a lot of times Voronoi cells are used in kind of fluid dynamics applications, some of which actually look like filters, but they're also used heavily in medical implants. So if you have a part of your hip replaced, you might actually print the implant and that implant might have a Voronoi cell lattice inside of it. And so the, and the reason you have a lattice there is that you actually want the bone to grow into this lattice structure. So you print this porous titanium part and your bone grows into it over time. And in those cases, we might say, you know, we don't want an even distribution of lattice beams. We want them to be more dense in this location because well, whatever the, I, I'm, not, I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm no doctor, but um, maybe <laughs> the, the middle of your bone is going to grow in a different way than the outside of your bone is going to grow or something like that. So, so you're, you're describing, you know, the use of lattices in like the interior of something as a purely structural component and, uh, you know, this kind of technology as a way to achieve new efficiency in the structural aspect of what you're doing. But it, it strikes me that, you know, lattices could be very beautiful, very striking as kind of a design component. Have you seen much in the way of aesthetic lattices, lattices that are intended to be seen or touched as part of the product? Yeah, absolutely. So we work with a couple of different consumer tech companies. And one of the places that we've seen lattices a lot over the past few years is in shoes, right? So there you're actually getting a combination of two effects. On one hand, they do have a visual component and you're actually, you know, you're looking at it similar to the way that, you know, the air pocket on Nikes became such a huge deal. We're seeing kind of a movement that direction where instead of having a foam midsole, you have just a full lattice structure. So it's visually 
interesting and it also provides really unique cushioning characteristics. And so, you know, maybe the heel of your shoe is going to have a different density and a different response rate than the toe is or something like that. The people that use Lattice's most the most visually striking way to, to my eye is uh, Nervous System out of Boston, which they make, uh, I think, really beautiful jewelry and uh, textiles, although you, it's kind of a weird application of textiles. Chainmail textiles, right? Yeah, exactly, which sounds cold, but it's actually really amazing. They're a mathematician by training. Like, I mean, that's what's so cool about their work. And that's that's what's, to me, what's so cool about this type of lattice structure design is that, and also, as luck would have it, the promising future of digital manufacturing. Because, you know, you're, you're a lot closer to the math, to like the sort of theoretical stuff. And you don't have to go through like such an onerous middle process of translating that into reality. And like, I think design-wise, when you get something that's reduced down and functional, there's always a certain beauty to it. Absolutely. So one of the projects that you have talked about in your newsletter that's kind of an ongoing thing, maybe you've spent a year or so on it, is a titanium, a 3D printed seat post topper for a bike. What's the origin of that project? Why is it such a fascinating or, or beguiling manufacturing project? So that's been, I think it's been three or four years now that I've been working on it, which is kind of amazing. That was, let's roll back the clock a couple of years. Sure, sure. Right? Um, <laughs> so it's 20, I think 2013 or so, and I had just moved to New York City. I had been living in Eastern Long Island before that. Moved into the city and was really exploring all kinds of things in hardware and manufacturing. And one of the things that I became interested in was kind of just 3D printing generally, right? At the time, you know, we had two pretty big startups in New York. We had Shapeways and we had MakerBot, both of which were doing interesting stuff, but they're plastic, right? And plastics are useful for all kinds of things, but my background is in metals. You know, I had a machine shop in my house for a couple of years. I, have, I built custom bicycle frames for a couple of years. I'm a welder, I'm a machinist. And so when I think about manufacturing, I'm really, I'm drawn towards mechanical, highly functional things. And so Shapeways and MakerBot are, you know, great companies and interesting products, but they weren't really for me. And so I was kind of poking around other aspects of 3D printing. And at the time, General Electric had just acquired a really big job shop, a contract manufacturer in Cincinnati called Morris Technologies. Morris was one of the first, I think they were the first company in the U.S. to have a metal 3D printer. And they were acquired because uh, GE Aviation, so GE, you might know them for microwaves, but really they make jet engines and industrial glass turbines and all these really big manufactured, high precision parts. Rotating equipment, as they call it, a little anticlimactically sometimes. Big, big iron, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Rotating equipment. <laughs> 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 so GE Aviation had had been printing auto parts and they acquired Morris and I became aware of this and I kind of got curious. It was, I have a background in machining. I've designed extruded components. I've used a lot of cast components. And so my, I was just wondering like, well, what is this metal printing capable of? What is its cost structure? What are the material properties? And having a background in bikes, I started wondering whether you could print something for a bike in metal. For context, the metal printers in the market today, like I said, they cost you know, between 
on the low end, maybe a quarter million dollars up to about a million dollars. And they print parts that are, you know, smaller than a bread box. So if you're looking for products that might work in those kinds of printers, they have to be relatively small and they have to be really high value. And so you're looking for an industry where people are willing to spend a lot of money for relatively small increases in performance, which is why rotating equipment is so great. Because if you reduce a little bit of mass on the blade of a turbine, you can get huge improvements in efficiency and so on and so forth. Well, another area where people pay for performance is high-end bikes. And so you know, I'm looking for a part on a bike that is relatively small and that has some amount of sex appeal and just kind of started designing a seat mass topper. And then it's kind of become a couple different products. So I'm, I'm working on a seat post, a seat mass topper, and then a couple of headset components, a stem and a headset top cap. And they end up being great places to test ideas about the industry. You can sell relatively small volumes at relatively high prices and you can get performance benefits from it. So, so you've been doing this basically as an exercise to take a part that you're already familiar with making in your work as a machinist and a metal worker and kind of go through the exercise so that you could better understand the process of 3D printing or metal, metal 3D printing. So as a designer and engineer going through this exercise, what have you learned along the way? A couple things initially. First of all, the metal printing industry is very, very young, right? I should note that I am working primarily with laser and electron beam powder bed fusion. These are the processes that are most commonly used in aerospace and medical implants today. Explain the process uh, in, in just briefly. I mean, is it different from selective laser sintering? It's very similar to SLS. You're rolling out a very fine layer of metal powder, and then you're melting certain areas of it with either a laser beam or an electron beam. Got it. So this industry is, it's small, and I don't mean in terms of numbers of dollars. I mean, in, in terms of number of people, right? There just aren't that many printers in the U.S. and there aren't that many people in the U.S. or the world who really understand it. There's also a relatively large kind of diversity of cost structures and business models within those manufacturers. To a designer like myself, what that means is you send a part out to quote to 10 different shops and you're going to get 10 very different responses back. And probably three of them are going to say, maybe one of them says, you absolutely shouldn't print this. Three of them say, you probably shouldn't print this. And then the rest of them say, hey, no problem. It's going to be $10,000, <laughs> right? So, and, and so the challenge has been figuring out, A, is this feasible? And it took me a bunch of prints to actually make something that worked at all. But when it did work at all, it worked really well. And it was lightweight and strong and passed the fatigue and um, and extreme loading tests that are required for, the, for this product. And you can print them in really small quantities, right? So order of 10 or 15 parts is, it won't totally max out your efficiency, but it'll get pretty close. Titanium 3D printing is still pretty exotic to most people who have worked with 3D printing and most people who have worked with metals in a more conventional machining context. How easy is it to design a high performance part for titanium 3D printing and anticipate the performance characteristics of it? So you've got like all of these rules of thumb for understanding the performance of titanium that's been carved from a block of titanium. But in metal 3D printing, you've got like binders and like some characteristics from from the laser and so on that might uh, change it. How predictable is it? How easy is it? So the material properties are great, right? It's you know similar to wrought titanium, very strong parts once you print them. The issue, however, is, and if, if you have any experience with welding or, or even soldering in some cases, you'll probably understand this, you're adding a huge amount of 
energy, of thermal energy into these parts. So when you print titanium, the entire part is welded together. And the result is that you have all kinds of built-in stress and therefore distortion in the part that you print. And we generally recommend against printing boxy parts, but if you were to print a part that has the same overall size and shape as an iPhone, and you were to print it, if you were to just lay it down flat in your build chamber and print it there, what would happen is as you print it, it would turn into a potato chip. The sides would curl up because you're adding so much heat into the top of the part and you're welding this whole thing together successively over you know thousands of different layers. The entire thing is going to curl up and look like a potato chip. So there are a couple of ways of dealing with that. You can use support structures to anchor the part down to your build plate. And so these parts are typically printed on a slab of titanium that's like an inch thick. And there are these huge bolts, maybe, you know, probably half inch bolts in each of the corners holding this plate down to the machine. If you print a big enough part, those bolts will break. The part can actually pull this one inch thick piece of titanium hard enough that it'll break the bolts that are holding it down. Wow. You can mitigate that in some cases by just clever use of support structures. But, you know, ultimately you have to design the part such that you don't have these big cross-sectional areas on every single layer. Or you have to orient the part such that it slices a little bit more easily. So it sounds like you need careful lattice design. Oh, yes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so that's that's kind of the reason I became interested in lattices because anywhere that you have a big, solid piece of material, you're going to have a lot of built-in stress. So if you can take the same amount of mass and distribute it over a larger area, you can oftentimes help yourself out a lot with distortion due to stress. Exactly. Interesting. What's the technology uh, landscape that's available to, let's say, an, anyone below the level of GE? Is high-end metal 3D printing so widely available that like an individual willing to pay, you know, a significant amount of money, but but an individual could have something printed on the same types of machines that GE is using to produce uh, jet engine components? Yeah, absolutely. So there are probably a couple of dozen job shops in the U.S. that offer metal printing services, and they're using the same machines or very similar machines to the ones that the big industrial players are using. Now, the cost structure is it's up there for sure. So, you know, I'm working on a part right now that is that's about the size of a wooden nickel actually. So, uh-huh. it's uh, maybe an inch and a quarter in diameter and it's probably a quarter inch tall or something like that. And the mass of the part is about 4 grams. So, it, it's almost all air. Is what I'm saying. And to print that part is going to cost me something between 50 and 100. dollars You know, if you were to machine this part, you could get it almost for free. It were uh, a part of those same outer dimensions, at least. And if you printed the, a, a part the size of a water glass, that might cost you three or four thousand dollars, something like that. It's expensive, but it's relatively easy to find job shops who will print stuff for you. The difficulty oftentimes is that, and I I had this problem early on, getting job shops to take you seriously is hard. And this is something that, you know, I I hear a lot of people talking in the startup world about, you know, unit quantity one and this idea of mass customization, right? So this idea that, hey, you know, when we're printing things, it's just as expensive to print one of them as it is to print a thousand. And in a very narrow context, 
context, that's true. But it doesn't matter how you're manufacturing things. If, if you're ordering in bulk, people are still going to give you a discount because that means that their overhead, their you know, their sales team has to work that much less hard in order to get enough business, right? So if you're just buying one part, getting a job shop to take you really seriously and to work through what is ultimately a complex engineering challenge can be really hard. Whereas, you know, if you come to them and say, hey, this thing I'm gonna, I'm making, I'm gonna order 20,000 of them next year. If they believe that they're gonna take you very seriously. That's part of the appeal of, you know, some manufacturing startup ideas like Plethora, which is a, a very digitally driven machine shop in San Francisco. The promise I think is that they're cutting overhead enough and all of the onboarding can be through the website so that they can take you seriously at one part. And obviously you pay more for one part, but if you can decrease the amount of human labor that goes into the setup and create a process that isn't just like faxing a drawing to a guy in a machine shop, but you know, something a little bit more uh, automated, automated, a little more accessible to an individual, then this stuff opens up. I mean, it's the same, David, you deal with this all the time in electronics, right? It's really hard to get electronics suppliers to take you seriously when you just want three of a thing to experiment with. The, the guy that I know who runs that Dirty PCBs website where you can get super duper cheap Chinese circuit boards made, you know, it's very cheap, but basically what he did is he, he wired, uh, made an automated system that takes your Gerber files and sends them directly to a factory and somehow worked out a deal with the factory and said like, look, we'll pay you, just make whatever people send you and send it back and you know, whatever. So like you can get circuit boards done for super cheap, but they'll laugh at you if you want customer service, but also it's so cheap because like normally the process for getting boards made, at least in the US is like, you know, you have to put your package together and make your build book and send it to an engineer and then they look at it, then they review it and they call you if there's a problem and there, there's a bunch of people working on it and the setup cost is really high. But I mean, if you just want a couple parts, why not just send it straight to the machines and just go for it? But that doesn't really exist that much in manufacturing really. Yeah, and the thing about metal printing and specifically right now is that it is a very manual process. You know, setting up your your build orientation, setting up support structures, those are all very manual processes and the way they're done is because, you know, the guy that hopefully you are talking to somebody on the other right. end and hopefully it isn't a sales guy. Hopefully it's the actual, it's the person who's running the machine. Yeah, they're, they're packing your parts in with other other people's parts too, right? And the whole, they have to plan the whole yep. build volume and, and use their knowledge of the process to like rotate them all in the correct way to minimize the total cross-sectional area. And Yeah, so it's, I actually, you know, I'm, I'm waiting for a plethora part uh, right now. I just bought a, a CNC aluminum part from my desk um, from them last week. For something like that, for CNC machining, where we as, you know, humans have done so much of it, we're really good at it. You know, we know speeds and feeds pretty well. Right. It's a great application for cutting out the customer service and just automating the, the purchase process. We're not quite there with laser metal 3D printing right now. The other thing that's really important about that idea of an automated process for sort of uploading a design and getting a quote, which is a big part of it, is like an instantaneous quote. And you can get this from Plethora or from Proto Labs. Yeah, it shortens the feedback loop, right? And it makes it possible to order machined parts without necessarily being an expert in machined parts. Because if it takes a day to like fax a design to someone, maybe not get a response because you're just an individual and not a giant company. And then when the response does come, it's like a thousand dollars more than you anticipated, you know, and, and the reason is that you designed something so that they have to use a five axis machine instead of a three axis mill. And you have to go back and sort of modify it. If that feedback loop can just be a few seconds, it makes it much more accessible to people who aren't experts in the field. And that's something that's exciting feature of all digital manufacturing now is this like tight feedback loop. A lot of software writes
right up to the moment that you start building. And software has this characteristic that you can kind of experiment with it at very, very, very low cost and very, very little time. And you can kind of feel your way into the manufacturing process without being a mechanical engineer or a mechanical designer. Yeah, so this is something that I'm kind of interested in. Uh, and actually, I'd be, I'd be curious to hear, David, what your experience in China has been like recently. So, John, part of the reason that we need that software, part of the reason that we that we want to be able to experiment with costing in a real-time way is that in the U.S., engineers don't work in the same buildings or the same rooms as the people who are going to manufacture that stuff, yeah. right? It's a highly abstracted process. Exactly. So a couple of years ago, I worked at a company that was building robot doors, these complex electromechanical assemblies. We had a bunch of extruded stuff. We had a custom Linux PC in the basement. It was a complex project. But I sat at this desk that was right, you know, it was three feet away from the machinist who was prototyping stuff. And it was then six feet away from two lathes and then a vertical mill and a horizontal mill and a, and you know and so that feedback loop was immediate and it allowed for judgment which for better or worse most of that software doesn't have right it's not that's not really a built-in feature i think it's a big difference i mean people talk and ask ask a lot about what's the difference between china manufacturing and western manufacturing and all these other questions and what can be learned back and forth and i mean i think with physical stuff with hardware physical proximity is very important i mean in Shenzhen, all the factories and the markets, well, many of the factories and markets and everything are, are located all within a day's drive of each other. You can jump in the car with your engineer and go over and check something out. You can take a part over and point at someone. I mean, when you're developing software, right, even if you have teams on opposite sides of the world, you can set up a virtual machine that's running exactly the same environment. So if your code's having an issue, you just send it to them and they compile it and receive exactly the same error message. And you can work on it together. But I mean, it just takes longer to describe the manner in which your part is peeling up like a potato chip in the bed of this $100,000 3D printer to a mechanical specialist or materials scientist on the other side of the world. I mean, you multiply that by tons of interactions and issues that can happen over the course of making a mechanical thing or a manufacturing run. And of course, it's going to take way longer. Yeah. So, so I think this is a fundamental question in manufacturing today. I mean, we're putting a lot of energy into automating this stuff. And I think that for many of the problems in engineering and manufacturing today, that's a great idea. And for instance, and again, CNC machining, that's fantastic for a huge portion of CNC machining. But I do think that there's also a value to sitting in the same room as somebody who's running a machine. I think it's really valuable to have run a machine at some point yourself. You know, I worry sometimes that if we go 100% that automated direction, direction, then is there a downside to that? Do we do we lose all chance of having the kind of Shenzhen ecosystem where there is that proximity and there is that cross-pollination too, right? I mean, automate all you want, but I think that there is some place for communication across disciplines. And I'm not sure that we've figured out software solutions to do that in any context. Yeah. So do you think that the kind of automation that I've just praised as allowing novices to sort of get in and experiment is actually detrimental, that novices should in fact spend more time on the phone with grumpy machinists? <laughs> I am a big advocate of using the phone where it's appropriate. I think that it's a good thing to do. I don't think it's detrimental, right? I wouldn't go quite that far. But I think that you have to be careful to, to design a system that allows 
for other methods of interaction. If all we're doing is, yeah, sending digital files to somebody across the world that we don't know anything about, we lose empathy for what they're going through and we lose access to any good ideas that they might have. You know, it's possible that we can build some of those good ideas into the software interface that we're using, but I'm skeptical of that. I just because how much empathy do we have in our software right now? And it, you know, in the meantime, yeah, you know, like I said, like I'm waiting for a plethora part right now, but I also I maintain a relationship with a machinist in New York, and that's really valuable. I I think that everybody should have that. You have to know how the process works, right? I mean, for me, as you know, when I'm doing design work, I think that the big thing about additive manufacturing and distributed design work is the repeatability angle. I mean, getting 3D printers that will do the same thing every time, right? Whether or not it's a part success or a part failure, at least knowing that it'll do the same thing. So like, I know people say in shoes or accessories companies where they'll have the design team somewhere and then they'll design a thing and print it off in their local office color printer and confirm that it's right. And then they'll email the file over to the shop in Vietnam or Asia or whatever and then they'll print it off and it'll be the same way because it's the same machine it's the same part file and it's repeatable and then those people will have the actual physical model in their hands and they didn't have to fly it they didn't have to wait for two weeks they could just transmit the digital model and I mean it's it's really enabled by the magic of the repeatability of the digital aspect I mean it's not like it's doing the people's thinking work for them it's just enabling them to to communicate and feedback a lot faster definitely and I've never visited it myself but I hear that you know for instance the Apple hardware product development studio has the same Robo drill, you know, the same Fanuc Robo drill that they have 10,000 of in Ningbo or wherever it is, right? Having that same equipment is fantastic for that exactly the result you just said. And Apple's known, I mean, that, that's what they're really good at, right? Is figuring out their, the magic of their design is figuring out how to efficiently make all those processes and like most efficiently use every single part of the aluminum plate. Have you seen those those things where they show about how the iMac is made? I forgot, there was some blog post about it a couple of years ago where they actually showed like, okay, this is an actual piece of aluminum. They cut the frame of the iMac out of it here. They also can do this many keyboards per thing and they design the parts across several different product lines to be fitting into like the same piece of of raw material in order to to further optimize everything because multiplied out across the amount of things that they're making it actually makes it a reasonable thing to do it's a lot of aluminum but you have to have the exact same freaking robo drill in your design lab as you have many thousands of right right yep yeah there's so much machined aluminum volumes in apple products i've always wondered how they do it like are they just (laughs) sending tons and tons and tons of chips back to the furnace every day. I'm sure that's part of it, but that's a good explanation too, yeah. Yeah. Cool. If listeners are interested in learning more about Spencer and his work and sort of tapping into uh, his understanding of the modern digital fabrication landscape, I can't recommend his newsletter, The Prepared, enough. We'll link to it in the blog post that goes along with this episode in, in the show notes. Spencer, anything else you want to you wanna plug anywhere in particular listeners can find you? I'm on Twitter and uh, my own website and so on and so forth. Awesome. Awesome. Spencer, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much, guys. Yeah, thanks, Spencer. Good to talk to you, man. This is The Digital Factory, a a series presented by Formlabs, uh, where we're talking about digital manufacturing in conversations with experts who are changing the way things are made. For The Digital Factory, I'm John Bruner. 